0: Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. When we think about the first encounters between Europe and the Americas, we tend to think of a one-sided story of old-world Europeans voyaging to the new world of the Americas. But what we don't hear so much about is the other side of this cultural exchange. In her book, On Savage Shores, Caroline Dodds-Pennock explores the stories of the indigenous Americans who travelled to Europe following Columbus's 1492 journey. I spoke to her to hear more about their experiences. I wonder if we could start with the title of your book, On Savage Shores. What can you tell us about the meaning behind that title?
2: The title was really deliberately designed to try and invert stereotypes. So far too often people use the word savage, which is a racial slur to apply to Indigenous peoples, and that has been the historical image of them. But in my book, I look at the way that Indigenous peoples see Europe and see Europeans, and for them, this place is a savage place. It's an awful place. Savage, of course, is a word that historically has been used in all kinds of ways. But I really wanted to deliberately invert the stereotype because it's just so often been used to diminish and belittle Indigenous peoples, where the perspective of the Indigenous travellers that I'm looking at on Europe is that Europe itself is a much more savage place than the Americas they come from. You
0: make the point in the book that we often think about this moment of cultural encounter between um, Europeans and Indigenous Americans as a one-way street. We think of the Europeans going to America, but why is it that we don't hear anything about the
2: reverse? I think that's a really good question because it's not that historians have never written about this. So I am standing on the shoulders of other scholars who have looked at the travelers who have come from the Americas to Europe at various times. But their presence just doesn't seem to have impacted on popular views of Europe, does it? We we picture European society as this kind of white, if you, it's British, roughed and codpiece, or Spain, kind of the golden age. And some work started being done recently by people like Olivetto Tele and um, uh, David Olasoga and others to change the way that, people see Europe in terms of recognising the presence of peoples of African and African descent. Um, But for some reason, Indigenous peoples don't seem to have made their way into that picture very much. They just haven't made an imprint on our popular understanding of the past. And I don't know why that is, except I guess that most people have believed the past to be white simply because that's the picture they've seen of it, our popular representations of the past on television until relatively recently tended to be very white. The stories we told were about kings and lords, about Henry VIII. But how many people know that there was a Brazilian king, though he probably wouldn't have used the word king, at the court of Henry VIII, or that there were tens of thousands of indigenous enslaved people in Spain? Those things just haven't become part of that picture. And those moves are happening but it's it's only just now I think I hope getting into the popular imagination so as you've highlighted there these are stories that I think a lot of listeners might
0: not be familiar with so before we delve into some of them let's just cover off a couple of basics what kind of numbers of people are we talking about here how many indigenous Americans came to Europe when did they begin to appear and where did most of them end up
2: Well, exact numbers are really difficult because the figures that we have, the official statistics, are almost certainly far too low. So we know at least tens of thousands, but the number may be very, very much larger. The thing is that the vast majority of these people, though by no means all, come as enslaved people into Spain and Portugal. And after 1542, it becomes illegal to enslave Indigenous people. So they start concealing it using words like brown, for example, in the sources, rather than indial, meaning Indian, which is the, the word that's used in the records at the time. And so we know people are still coming, but they're not being identified. Um, the numbers are certainly much larger in Spain and Portugal than they are elsewhere, but we know that there are indigenous peoples in England, in the Netherlands and the Low Countries, in Germany, they're recorded. So they're making their way all across Europe. And it's from as early as Columbus's very first voyage. He brings Taino people from the Caribbean with him on that very first voyage back to Europe from the Americas. Well, we talk about him discovering America, but actually he's, a, he's only in the Caribbean. He, he doesn't set foot on the mainland at that time. But he brings Indigenous people from that very first voyage. So from the first moment of encounter, Indigenous travellers are part of it. And how are you uncovering these
0: stories? You say that we probably know only
2: about a fraction of them. As a historian, what sources are you working with? again, I should be uh, careful of saying I'm not always uncovering them. Some of my colleagues have done amazing work in finding these stories. And I I really don't want to be that person that says, I discovered these people. But that said, of course, some of the stories I'm telling are completely new ones that, um, well, new. I'm writing about them in English for the first time uh, and have been working in the primary sources. A lot of my sources are, the problem is, the from the perspective of in europeans so you end up working with sources that are written either by people who kidnapped or accompanied or happened to see indigenous people in europe so we have an awful lot of chronicles by diplomats people at court Things like the, the Venetian ambassador to, to the Spanish court, for example, sees them. Peter Martyr sees the indigenous people at court and writes about them. These sorts of, of elite men keep records. I use an awful lot of sources from the Archivo General de Indias in Seville. So these are amazing records where indigenous peoples usually are applying for their freedom. So after 1542, when it becomes completely illegal to enslave indigenous people, before that it was just legal under certain circumstances, people start applying for their freedom. And so you get these very legalized but amazing testimonies of indigenous peoples from all across Central South America explaining what happened to them. And asking for their freedom and saying, I was kidnapped, or I was tricked, or I was seized as a child. And so you get a picture of their life through these formulaic, but still really fascinating legal records. And then just occasionally, you can hear the voices of indigenous people themselves. So there are the Cantares Mexicanos, the song among the songs of the Mexicans, as they're called. These Nahuatl sources where indigenous people are singing about their histories. It's the way they would have recorded things in in a popular oral tradition. We get some stories of their travel there too, and occasionally recorded voices. Of indigenous people. So, Michel de Montaigne famously claimed to have met some cannibals, as he called them, in Rouen, and he wrote about the conversation he had with them. And I do also sometimes use the perspectives of native peoples who travel to Europe later um, to complement that when we start to get uh, records written by native travellers in in the later period. I try and use them to complement the earlier period when we have very, very little in terms of people's own voices. So obviously you're drawing
0: on a hugely diverse range of different people here. Um, But is there anything that you would draw out, any threads you would draw out from these sources about what we can say about what Indigenous Americans made of European societies?
2: Well, we always have to speculate uh, a little bit, a little bit of informed speculation. But there are some common threads that come out in what we have. Uh, And though I should say that, of course, we're dealing with a hugely diverse range of Indigenous peoples, everyone from the Inuit down to people like the Tupi in Brazil. Uh, But as far as we can tell, the key themes, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is that uh, they're horrified by inequalities in European society. That is the big theme that comes out over and over, is they don't understand how there can be some people with vast extreme wealth and other people in abject poverty right beside them. That's not to say that indigenous civilizations are some kind of Utopia in which everybody has exactly the same thing. But the idea of vast wealth alongside grinding poverty simply does not sit well in cultures that tend to have a more de- redistributive, more communalistic attitude. They also tend to be a bit surprised by people in charge who aren't very effective or aren't very adult. So the, the, the idea of boy kings is completely nonsensical. Why wouldn't you have a strong man or woman in charge? My suspicion is that they saw gender roles rather uh, as rather peculiar because women in, in many uh, Native American cultures are incredibly effective and important and hold influence. So with the exception of Elizabeth I, they wouldn't have seen very much in the way of influential women that when they went to court. And so I think that probably sits rather unusually Um The other thing we get a little hint at is that beating your children wasn't considered, was something they were surprised by, that they uh, didn't understand violence against people you were supposed to be responsible for and and caring for. They had a a rather different attitude to childhood. Um, But it is quite, it is that theme of inequality that comes out repeatedly in the sources that we do have. Though the Cantare's see this in a totally different way and it's more of a, a symbolic view of Europe that comes through in the Cantares is in the Cantares Mexicanos, where you hear what seem to be the perspectives of people who've travelled to the papal court and to the Spanish court. And you get this symbolic fusing of the ideas of papal power and royal power and divine power. And they clearly were very impressed by the basilica. They talk about this kind of glowing interior and it's all tangled up with indigenous ideas about what would have happened in the ocean. Because now I'm saying indigenous. What I mean is Mexica. I'm talking about the Mexica or Aztec people. This is where the Cantares come from. The Mexica people made this wonderful record, this beautiful poem. And before the arrival of the Spanish, they viewed the world as being the earth surrounded by the ocean. And the ocean was a sort of globe that reached up to the heavens. And water is really important in their philosophy. And then after the Spanish arrive, the ocean clearly becomes a place of activity, somewhere you can go and cross. But still, in this poem, on the other side of the ocean is the suckling tree, as which is where Aztec babies come from. If you can literally picture a tree with little babies hanging like fruit sucking off it, it's it's very um, kind of adorable image. And they see that in the poem as being on the other side of the ocean, as well as the Pope and God and the Emperor somehow all fused together. And it's this amazing entanglement of different worldviews. Now, that doesn't mean literally people thought all those things were happening on the other side of the ocean, but they certainly were merging these different ways of thinking and they were developing. And this is quite quite early on. Um, And we do know that by that time, uh, quite a lot of Mexican travelers had been to Europe, a word I use because we don't always know exactly where in Mexico they're from. And so the word Don Martin is mentioned in the poem. And at least three famous Don Martins had been to Europe by that point, indigenous Don Martins. So it does seem to, at the same time, be telling a literal kind of news story. Oh, these are things that have been happening. And also, evoking uh, a wider worldview. They're absorbing these ways of thinking into their own perspective of the world, which I, I really found fascinating. As you mentioned earlier,
0: many of these people were traveling against their will. So what can you tell us about the enslavement of Indigenous American peoples? Because I think this is part of the story of slavery that many people in Europe might not be so familiar with.
2: Yes, I think that's right. There's been a an upsurge in scholarly literature on the enslavement of indigenous peoples both within the Americas and across the Atlantic in the last few decades and in particular a wonderful book by Andres Resendez called the other slavery and he estimates that around a million people are enslaved before 1600 alone 4 to 5 million by 1900 and he the idea of the other slavery is that it's this one that hasn't been as recognised by history. And also that it is another kind of slavery, because very often these people are in forms of forced labour that aren't technically labelled slavery, but are effectively bondage. Now, as I've mentioned in the very first part of the 16th century, you do have people being literally traded across the Atlantic in slavery. These people are... Sent as galley slaves uh, in the records, um, or they are enslaved individuals, and we would estimate maybe tens of thousands. Some people have gone as high as hundreds of thousands. I haven't been able to verify a number that quite that high, but what's certainly happening is that Europeans are kidnapping Indigenous peoples and using them for forced labor, both within the Americas and overseas. The extent of that becomes much murkier, as I say, after. 1542, when a thing called the New Laws makes indigenous slavery illegal. That said, it still does carry on in Spanish territories and it's not banned in Portuguese territories till much later or in British territories. Uh, at all, really, because technically they're not supposed to be enslaving indigenous peoples in many places, so they racialize them as black. In Spanish territories, for example, a thing called the encomienda, where you are technically entrusted, that's what it means, to a Spaniard, they're supposed to look after you and evangelise you, and in exchange you work for them effectively. And that may as well, in many cases, be slavery. There are lots of these sorts of forced labor systems, most famously uh, with the meter at Potosi, the big mountain of silver where the mines are. Many indigenous people are enslaved in the mines in the Americas. But then we also see them being brought across the Atlantic. And that's the part that although people like Nancy Van Dusen, has, who's written some great stuff on this, uh, have started to talk about it, I think we don't see that as much as part of that transatlantic slave trade, but it is very much happening and is happening alongside the enslavement of Africans and African-descended peoples. It seems very likely that people who are trading Africans to the West are bringing Indigenous peoples to the East in some cases. And for example, in Lisbon, it's quite clear that uh, both Black and indigenous people are sharing experiences as enslaved people. It's a kind of shared experience of bondage. You see them in the same places, experiencing the same things. So the ubiquity of this, especially in Spain and Portugal, is, is very large. But then you also you have fewer people go to Britain in this early period because what my book is about is that first moment of encounter. And because the British don't really get involved in transatlantic exploration until the 1580s in a really serious way, there are fewer people coming to Britain. But nonetheless, quite a few of those people are brought, that's the word that's often used, or taken, rather than travelling of their own volition. And you have to look out for those words in the sources. I brought 10 Indigenous Brazilians with me. Oh, really? You did? And how did they end up there? Were they choosing to go? I think probably not. Even in the cases of elite people being brought over who end up being kind of diplomatic representatives for their people, often the consent is very, very murky. So we have all of these different types of experience, everything from being literally billed and labelled as an enslaved person, recorded in that way, sold traded and, and sometimes freed by the Spanish courts, very often freed by the Spanish courts. Everything from that to people who are, whose consent is, is ambiguous rather than explicitly not given.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: Indigenous peoples are taking the steps to reclaim those histories, to repair these wounds where they can, but there's, there's a lot more to do.
0: So a very murky picture then, but you mentioned the elite people who came across and uh, got involved in diplomacy. What can you tell us about, about that side of things? What kind of petitions were they taking to Europe and and what methods did they use
2: to further their causes? This is one of those places where it's important, I think, to distinguish with where we're talking about. So in Britain in this period, or England really, we see a number of high status indigenous peoples coming over to uh, either assist the British in their explorations in some cases, or apparently to meet with the king. So in the case of the Brazilian king who met Henry VIII, he supposedly comes over and is uh, on a diplomatic mission. They leave in that case a British hostage for his safe return and they're quite worried when in fact he dies before they're able to take him back probably of one of the diseases that a lot of indigenous people succumb to um and but the his people um understand they they allow the hostage to be freed but they're quite worried that the hostage might die so that in that case it does seem like it's a consensual uh, voyage because of the the leaving of the hostage and so on. It's a little bit difficult to tell how much he would have understood, of course, because they're only just starting to learn the languages. But it does seem that by the time he's spent about a year away from his people, he would have been able to communicate fully. Uh, you also have travellers like Manteo and Wanchese, who are high status men who come over perhaps to investigate Britain on behalf of their peoples, they're from uh, Roanoke and Croatan, sorry, in the northeast uh, along the coast of the northeastern United States. And although they do become entangled with British agendas, they seem to be there as part of a mission for their own peoples. The same is true of some of the Taíno peoples who come across. They were in the very early period, in the 1490s or so. It was originally assumed that they were simply brought by Columbus. But when you dig into the sources, it appears that some of them are related to the rulers of the Caribbean islands. So there may be a diplomatic agenda there. So we have this group of people who are of kind of ambiguously uh, diplomatic, but it seems like what they're doing there is deliberate and is as um, scouts in a way for their people finding out what's going on, who these people are. And then in the Spanish and Portuguese territories, in particular what I looked at was Spain, uh, you have high-status indigenous noble people, very often descendants of prominent city-state nobilities, coming over literally to appeal for their rights through the Spanish legal system. And they are much better recorded. So. For example, the Sons of Moctezuma come to court and are recorded travelling to court and appealing for money, for pensions, for jobs, for the rights to their lands to be confirmed. The Spanish, remember, are on kind of slightly dubious legal ground because the only reason that they're Authority in the Americas is legitimate, is that they have to evangelize. And so they have to accept these people as potential converts and therefore also as fully human and within their rights to assert their powers over their peoples, for example. So one of the ways the Spanish legitimate their authority in the Americas is by recognizing what they call the natural lords, señores naturales of the land, and intermarrying with them and giving them power within the Spanish legal structure. So in particular, the Tlaxcalans, who ally with the Spanish and help them defeat the Mexica, the people we think of, as the Aztecs, they are very successful within the Spanish legal system. So the first time uh, Cortes returns to Spain from Mexico in 1528, he brings with him a big entourage and historically we've tended to focus on the fact that he has entertainers and jugglers and tumblers but also in that entourage is quite a large group of ambassadors noble men who are there to promote the 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 uh, interests of their cities and of their families and The Clash during that expedition, they gain the right to be recognised, their city to be recognised as an independent state under the crown. So they can never be subject to encomienda or local authority. They get a coat of arms. They get exemptions from taxation, for example. And so while they're especially successful, they're pretty typical of the kinds of expeditions that you see. Noble families come to Spain to promote their family interests, to promote their state interests, to complain about things that Spaniards are doing, Or things that the commoners are doing. There's a a fascinating letter where the nobility are really annoyed that of the the basically the nouveau riche commoners who were being too successful within the new cash crop system and they try to get the Spanish crown to help them keep the commoners in their place. You know, there's it's not a straightforward Spanish against indigenous or Europeans oppressing indigenous people. Very often indigenous nobilities either are forced or decide to cooperate with or exploit European structures or uh, beliefs or ways of doing things or or authorities. I've mentioned the Tlaxcalans a few times, but that's just because they're the best example of a group that quite clearly decide it's in their best interest to collaborate with the Spanish. Now, that may not have been true in the long term, but in the short term. What happens is that they managed to defeat the Mexica who they've been fighting for, for decades. So you might as well almost call the Spanish conquest the, the Tlashkalan conquest. They're the ones who have tens of thousands of warriors that suppress uh, Tenochtitlan, the Aztec capital. This isn't a, a simple picture. But even those, even the people of Tenochtitlan, after the, the conquest, send their nobility to appeal on their behalf. You then have a few people who appear at court who either were just, who travel there as family members of Spaniards, so they intermarry and they might then go to court or go to the legal system to appeal. And of course, the reason I keep talking about the legal system is that legal systems have records. Well, I wonder if I could pick you up on a point you made there about
0: Indigenous Americans intermarrying with Europeans. Um, and there are a lot of cases that you recount in the book of people beginning families with Europeans, whether willingly or unwillingly. Could you give us some examples and some of the complexities at play there?
2: So we know that in the Americas, Indigenous women in particular, though not exclusively, often have relationships with European men. Now, those are often informal and so Spaniards or other Europeans aren't always keen to bring indigenous wives with them when they come back to Europe. One of the most famous examples, so not someone I, I look at in the book because it's a little bit after my period, is of course Matoaka, who many people know as Pocahontas, who came to Europe uh, as the wife of a British man and was used to promote British colonisation in the Americas as a kind of ideal. Look how civilised we can make Indigenous people. The thing is, though, that it's much more ubiquitous than that on the continent. So you have occasionally Spaniards bringing Indigenous wives or partners and them appearing in the records. We know it's happening unrecorded a lot of the time because the trouble is that uh, the Spanish licences to travel across the Atlantic, you have to get a licence if you want to travel. The Spanish licences very often just refer to a word that essentially refer to people by a word that essentially means dependent. And you don't have to define exactly who that is. So it could be a servant, could be a partner children, mestizo mixed children, are very often brought to Europe by their fathers because of patria potestas, the power of the father. So uh, Spanish fathers often bring Indigenous children to Europe. The most famous example probably being Hernando Cortes, the conquistador himself, who brings his young son, Don Martin, to Spain and legitimizes him. The Pope legitimizes the son, and the son actually gains a much higher status than Cortes himself, being able to become recognized as uh, a member of the Order of Santiago, which Cortes is told he's not allowed to be in because he's not of good enough birth. But Don Martin, his, his son, who Cortes has with his indigenous translator, Malintzin, um, is able to become a member of the Order of Santiago because his mother is considered to be a high-status indigenous woman who was really important in the conquest. And then, of course, by then, Cortes is the conquistador, he's a marquess. So Don Martín is is more important than his father in in legitimising terms. But then you have these much, much more ordinary stories. So, for example, we know that in fifteen. 39, a woman called Beatriz, who is probably Comanagato. Um, She's from somewhere in Venezuela. She comes across the Atlantic with a man called Alonso Ponce and their mestiza daughter Juana, who's probably about four or five when they come across. And we know that Beatriz was enslaved because she has um, marks of being branded on her face. Alonso Ponce was the third person to enslave her that we know of. But As far as we know, um, they had a a relationship. She was recognised as his partner. If she'd managed to live just one more year, she'd have been able to apply for her freedom under the new laws that we talked about. But as it is, she dies and is buried in um, the Church of San Augustin, which is in Alcala. And then he cares for his daughter with the help of his sister, I think it is. And sends his daughter uh, Juana off to become a maid in a um, civil household when she's grown up. And that's what you would have done with a non uh, mestiza daughter. She just seems to become part of the community. So we have quite a lot of these very ordinary stories. There are some cases where the precarity of those people becomes very, very evident. So, for instance, a woman who is brought across by a man who she clearly recognises as her legitimate partner, but then he, for some reason, decides to marry and then dies, and the new wife tries to assert that she's enslaved, and they have to fight her in the courts. Your book
0: is chock-a-block with these kind of stories, but of all of them, I was wondering whether there were any that really... Stuck with you?
2: Yes, I. I think the the story that most sticks with me is the story is actually a story that came from outside of my specialism. Originally, I started as a historian of the Mexica Aztec people, and when I came to study this, one famous example of the travellers is of a group of three Inuit people who are brought to. to to England by uh, Frobisher's expedition. A quite well-known English explorer called Martin Frobisher has been exploring in what is northeastern Canada. And in 1576, he brings an Inuk man to England and he becomes something of a minor celebrity and a bit of a a sensation in London. But then the following year, Frobisher goes back and he brings three Indigenous Inuit people with him back to London. Uh, a man, a woman, and uh, a baby or a, a toddler. Now, the Europeans think that the, they look like a family, but actually it seems that they, the mother and child and the father don't know each other, and they take great care to be very modest in front of each other on the ship, for example, so they look after each other, but they quite clearly are not a couple. They arrive in Bristol in... October 1577, and they become a real spectacle. It's quite uh, f- funny in some ways. The local records talk about the arrival of this Inuk man who is then asked to harpoon ducks on the Avon River in order to show how he would have harpooned seals. And that's a really, really funny image. But it's also an incredibly tragic story. We have this this slightly hilarious vignette, but this, these three people who by this point have become known as Calico and Arnak and Nutak. Now, we don't know what Calico means, but uh, Arnak and Nutak just means woman and child. And um, it seems like they've learned a little bit of English by the time they land in Bristol, but they, they don't know very much. And again, they become local celebrities, artists flock to to paint them. And it's from this that we actually know what they look like because John White, he drew these three um, Inuit people. And this is where it just is so striking and moving. He depicts Nutak peeking out of his mother's hood. So you can see these pictures online if you you look them up. Unfortunately, Calico, the man, becomes ill quite quickly. It seems he'd been injured when he was captured. And less than a month after he arrives in Bristol, he dies despite having medical treatment. And the doctor, Dodding, we have his autopsy report. And it seems like he makes Arnak, the woman, watch the autopsy and the burial to show her that he's not a cannibal which seems absolutely horrific frankly but she's very very quiet during all of this and um, he thinks that she's not bothered but it seems much more likely that she's incredibly traumatized by everything that's happening she herself then gets very ill quite quickly probably with measles. Uh, Indigenous peoples have no natural resistance to European diseases, so very frequently die of disease. And she dies a few days after Calico and is buried alongside him at St. Stephen's, which is is still there uh, near the river. And interestingly, as a side note, St. Stephen's is just a few metres behind our office where I'm recording right now. Well, wow, yeah, it's right by there. And so I went to see, when I was in Bristol, I went to see if there was any record, the Indigenous people, and there's nothing visible, um, but the parish register of burials records um, Calico and Arnax burials. Um, he, they, it calls them a heathen man and a heathen woman. Now, the baby, Nutak, is then taken to London and, um, He's maybe 14 or 15 months old. I'm saying a baby, but and I'm saying him because we're not certain of the gender, but one source says that it's a boy, but we're not 100% that that's actually true. Um, He must have been terrified. Um, His mother has died. These strangers take him to London to a, a pub, an inn called The Three Swans, where they put him on display and charge people to see him. A surgeon is called in to treat him. He probably has measles like his mother. And um, he dies in London after only eight days and is buried at St. Olav's in Hart Street, which is still there. It's a tiny church on the corner of Seething Lane. The other person who's really famous who's buried in the graveyard is Samuel Pepys. And we spend all our time, there's no detail of Samuel Pepys' life that goes unrecorded. And he's laid to rest in the same place as this tiny baby about whom we know almost nothing and whose voice we can barely hear. It's such a a striking juxtaposition for me, as is the image of this baby peeking out from behind his mother. Um, that's the story that that stayed with me. It's such a remarkable and moving and tragic but also sadly really typical story that was the story for so many indigenous peoples that they were brought away from their homelands and died in a strange land were uh, surrounded by strangers very often were buried in ways that do not respect their traditions or their beliefs and which separate them forever from their homelands which for many indigenous peoples is a is a rupture a wound that separation so yeah it's so amazing as as an individual story but is also in many ways so typical well I think that leads me
0: nicely to my final question for you today which is what you see as being the legacy of all of this today can it still be felt in Europe indigenous peoples
2: are starting to try and reclaim the um bodies and the belongings of their ancestors. So places like the British Museum still hold a lot of Indigenous remains, for example, some of which are of people who may have died here, but also others which were simply brought. So I think there's a legacy here of colonial violence which sits alongside these fascinating stories uh, and really must be acknowledged because while it's, it's possible to create a really almost a jolly cosmopolitan history of this period, I could say, well, the legacy is that our language is absolutely full of indigenous words. And so canoe, for example, or hammock. Or I could say that the foods that came from the Americas are just central to our lives today. Potatoes, tomatoes. Imagine Italian cooking without tomatoes or peppers, for example. Imagine Asian cooking or African cooking without chilies, the legacy of the what's often called the Colombian exchange is vast. And Indigenous peoples are very much part of that. The very first people to make drinking chocolate in Europe that we know of were Maya lords. And so you could focus on this as the roots of our global world today. And, and it is. But it is also something that reflects a colonial violence that has an enduring legacy. So I I think it's it's important to recognise the depth of that legacy and the ways in which Indigenous peoples are seeking to overcome it and to reclaim their heritage and their belongings. Indigenous peoples are taking the steps to reclaim those histories, to repair these wounds where they can. But there's, there's a lot more to do. There's a lot more work to do. That was Caroline
0: Dodds-Pennock. Her book, On Savage Shores, is out now, published by Orion. And you can find a version of this interview in the February issue of BBC History magazine. And if you're interested in learning more about the artistic legacy of early cultural encounters like the ones that we discussed today, then why not check out the BBC's Civilisations series and the episode First Contact? If you're in the UK, you can find that on BBC iPlayer now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.